0: This week, Fatima Bhutto returns with Dispatches from Bollywood, Dizzy and K-pop in her latest book, New Kings of the World. Fatima Bhutto was born in Kabul and grew up between Syria and Pakistan. She is the author of five previous books of fiction and non-fiction, her debut novel, The Shadow of the Crescent Moon, was long-listed for the Bailey's Women's Prize for Fiction, and her memoir about her father's life and assassination, Songs of Blood and Sword, was published to acclaim. Her most recent book, The Runaways, which is a novel you may have heard us talking about not that long ago on Little Atoms, and today we're going to be talking about Fatima's latest work of non-fiction, which is The New Kings of the World, Dispatches from Bollywood, Dizzy and K-pop. Fatima, welcome back.
1: Thank you for having me back.
0: Um, What's the idea behind this one?
1: Well, this is a narrative non-fiction look at the end of the American century and the rise of competing cultural industries coming from Asia, coming from India, from Turkey and from Korea.
0: So I want to talk first of all about the original spread of American soft power, by which we mean culture, pop Mm -hmm. culture, which Mm -hmm. we're all familiar with. But you talk about how often that was attached to Mm -hmm. military power.
1: Yes, it spread really partially through the the bases, through the American defense complex. Today is the the period um, with the lowest presence of American military bases around the world. But that was obviously not true in the 1960s or 1950s. You had enormous numbers of of troops, of bases, and from there you had American culture pushed out. So the case of Korea is a great example. Um, When the Americans were in Korea after the war, it was in the bases that young Korean musicians would come and play rock and roll, because there was nowhere else in Korea at the time that would allow them to. The favoured music was quite stodgy, and it was you know belonged to an older generation. So if you wanted to play rock and roll, if you wanted to play the electric guitar, it was the American bases that would have you, and there were troops that needed to be entertained.
0: So beyond the less American army military bases that there are now around mm-hmm. the world... Mm-hmm. What else has changed? What sort of caused, in general terms, around the world, the sort of pushback?
1: Well, I think there's several factors. I would say, first of all, globalization was a promise that turned out not to be true. So the world was promised that with globalization, with the movement of capital, would come incredible opportunities, riches, movement for everybody. And of course, that didn't happen. If you already had opportunity, wealth, and movement, you had more of it. But if you didn't, you're basically buried under the system. So a lot of people, hundreds of millions of people who left their homes and villages and moved to the cities found themselves adrift and unmoored. Those people are not represented in American pop culture. They don't see their stories or their struggles or their aspirations in Hollywood films, you know, or American music, let's say. I think the second factor is that is that migration. You know, we talk so much today about migration and people moving into other countries, but actually most migrants are moving internally. They're going from villages to cities. They're not crossing borders. That brings with it a lot of turbulence, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of shock. And that has certain implications, I think, also in culture. And then lastly, American, well, any soft power has to be believable in order for it to be effective. And whatever one thinks of American power and the brute force of American power, when Obama was the face of that power, it had a veneer over it that was sophisticated and glossy and you need not focus too much on its imperial designs or because you believed the story of America. So you could sit down and watch a movie of the story of America comfortably. But when the face of that power is Trump or Mike Pence or Richard Spencer, well, then it's, then it's harder.
0: And also, if you look at that the other way, if we think of you know, the American media's image of somewhere like Iran or something, you know, yeah. like the great Satan and burning and yeah. banning of American popular culture. Yeah, But of course, the reality across much of the world is, while a more conservative mm. society, you know, a solidly middle-class society that's not necessarily seeing itself reflected mm. in the modern American culture.
1: Yes, I mean, I think that's to say that it's not that Indian or Turkish or Korean cultural designs are innocent or that they don't come with certain agendas and politics behind it of course they do but we're fairly recent to those stories Mm -hmm. or I think generally we come to culture innocently when we sit down to watch a movie or read a book we're not suspicious of who's brought it to us and why we want to be entertained and led away but we know too much about America and I think that allows us to ask certain things that we maybe are not ready to ask yet about Turkey or India let's say
0: Let's talk about Bollywood first Mm. of all and ironically that sort of change that you just described about how people are not necessarily any longer seeing themselves reflected Mm. in American culture has sort of also happened over the years Mm. with the change in Bollywood which we'll come to in a minute but let's I guess first of all talk about Bollywood. Obviously Indian cinema is, is vastly different versions of it but we're specifically talking about that idea of you know Bollywood, mm. people will obviously be familiar with the, the singing of the dancing, but, it, but yeah. w- in what other ways is your average Bollywood film traditionally different from your average Hollywood film? Hollywood film.
1: Well, you know, Bollywood has always served as a mirror for India, uh, and I think it's a pretty faithful mirror, so it's reflected the politics and societal changes and movements of its time. So if you look at the early Bollywood films of the 1940s and 50s, they were filled with idealism. They were about the birth of hope and new nationhood and a certain um, justice and brotherhood that was the beginning, of course, of independent India. And by the 1970s, that dream is corroded by not just corruption, but the knowledge of, of of a very powerful central state that can decide... Who gets justice? Who doesn't get justice? Who is allowed to, to live in a high-rise? Who sleeps on the footpath? And, and the movies reflect that. The 90s are, of course, neoliberal. And I think this changes in a way that's quite unique. I'm not sure you could say the same is true of Hollywood necessarily, but in India it's quite clear. And today, of course, Bollywood films are, i mean, to me, unwatchable. They're just propaganda. They're quite ugly communal propaganda. But how they are different is that they are stories essentially centered around the family, There are stories in which there is a certain traditional uh, signs and symbolism that will not change no matter the decade. So your hero today may drive a Ferrari and, you know, may have a live-in girlfriend, but when his mother walks in the room, he touches her feet. So those things remain. But they are not stories that have happy endings necessarily, because life is not built on happy endings. The hero may die. The hero usually dies. (laughs) They don't have that tyranny of uh, positivity that, that Hollywood has. In that sense, they're quite different, of course, the, the singing and the, and the dancing, as you mentioned. But I, I don't think it comes from kitsch. I think it comes from cultural expressions. So if, if you are ever going to a, a temple, let's say, um, there is singing, there is movement, there is a lot more noise. There's not, it's not a silent conversation between a priest and a supplicant. I think it comes from that it's it's born out of the mughal court and the performances of the court and that remains in the film till today
0: in the same way that the people of india have sort of listened to the the siren song of capitalism and have mm. moved from the countryside mm-hmm. to urban areas mm-hmm. you see the same thing replicated in bollywood films.
1: yes yeah, so what's changed hugely is that the hero of bollywood films today is never a farmer he's never a poor man He's never a homeless man, which, by the way, was true in the 70s. You did have heroes who lived in villages. They may wear bell-bottoms, but they lived in the village, and they respected the village and its traditions. Today, the hero of Bollywood is not a Dalit. He's not a minority. He's essentially an upper-class Indian with access not just to consumer plenty, but also international plenty. So maybe he lives in London. Maybe he summers in Geneva. But is bound by a traditional set of values.
0: You mentioned that you know the international and, and in the past perhaps this idea of the NRI, the non-resident Indian, mm-hmm. somebody who has has migrated and lives abroad, yeah. was seen with some suspicion.
1: Yes, it's changed hugely because of course to to leave your country was to pollute your your spiritual standing, you lost a certain part of your, your identity by crossing the black waters of, of exile. And then, as you said, you know, the siren song of capitalism and neoliberal demands now mean that actually uh, crossing the black waters of exile mean you are a multinational, corporate you know, titan. So that changes and it's, it's reflected in the films. It's very interesting because compared to Turkey, there's a divide. Turkish Dizzy, or as they call the TV shows, will be set in Turkey. They will not be set in Switzerland and London and Lisbon, as Bollywood films are. There is no, there's no sort of respect in the Turk who leaves his country, the way a Bollywood film has grown to have that. And I asked a producer in Istanbul, I said, um, do you ever film outside? And he said, why would we? We've got everything here. And that, that idea has been absent in India for 30 years at least.
0: Also, the, the change in the, the sort of structure and the themes of the Bollywood film has, has changed. You mentioned this, it's become propaganda with the rise of the right and the yes. BJP, hasn't
1: it? You know, if I was writing this book today, I wouldn't have included Bollywood. I started writing the book um, in 2016. And so culture changes so quickly, isn't it? And it, it's up to the second. You're constantly updating yourself in culture. If I was writing the book in 2019 as opposed to 2016, I wouldn't have included Bollywood, I have to say.
0: Because of
1: because of that, I think that actually, if we look at the Turkish project or even the Korean project, mm-hmm. it's got an upward trajectory that's built on a certain kind of confidence. And that confidence allows it to move quite freely between the space it occupies. Whereas India, in terms of Bollywood, now has that space restricted. I think there are certain things you cannot say. I think there are certain things that are now considered incorrect or anti-national or... Um, against the grain, and I think the moment you do that to culture you you close it
0: but you, you're talking later in the book about k pop mm-hmm. Korean pop music, and, and one of the things of that chapter is how it 's pretty much about to be eclipsed by China or yes. we may be living in the last days of yeah. certainly the you know the pomp of of, of k pop but but Bollywood itself i mean. You talk, there's an interview, I want to talk to you about this interview with one of the stars, you talk about the, the three Khans, mm-hmm. three men who are the big stars of, mm-hmm. of Bollywood these days and, and you, you go to Dubai and interview uh, Shah Rukh Khan mm-hmm. and and as much as I hate to show my ignorance I've not mm-hmm. heard of any of these three men <laughs> yeah. um, I looked at their faces and perhaps recognised a couple of them from somewhere but yeah. I couldn't tell you any of the films that they've been in, yeah. they're not stars that have crossed over into, into Western film, like some do. Yeah. However, Shah Rukh Khan is yeah. one of the richest film stars in the world.
1: Yeah. On the Forbes list, I mean, uh, I mean, even the other hands are on Forbes lists. Um, they're consistently in the top five of those kind of lists, if not the top three. And they have enormous, enormous fan followings. Um, you know, I went to Peru to talk about the, the, the subculture of Peruvians mainly indigenous Peruvians who don't speak English, who come from the highlands and migrate into the cities. And they adore Shah Rukh Khan or Salman Khan or Amir Khan. And Why? What's the, what's the attraction? <laughs> well, the way they explained it to me in Peru is that there's quite a big divide between the indigenous Peruvian who have an Inca background um, and then the white Peruvians who come from that Spanish ancestry or Italian ancestry. And I didn't meet a single Bollywood fan who was white. They were all indigenous. And what they all said to me is that they feel ashamed. They feel put down. They don't feel they can wear their native dress on the streets of Lima. They feel that if they eat their traditional food from their villages, they are made, you know, they're made fun of. The language used is always pejorative about indigenous people. But Bollywood offered them not only really people who look like them physically, but people who are modern and traditional people who existed in the modern world but wore native dress, spoke native languages, followed native traditions. Um, that was very meaningful to them in a way that it just wouldn't have been to Peruvians with Spanish ancestry or Italian ancestry, let's say. But to go back to the, the Khans, I think there's few places on earth that they would go and not be recognized, weirdly. Bollywood films are very big in, um, in Africa, in Nigeria, in Kenya. Um, Shah Rukh Khan, when I interviewed him, told me there is a small group of elderly German ladies who follow him every single place he goes. And they don't bother him, they just watch him <laughs> and love him. And, and the reasoning that they told, or at least Germans have told Shah Rukh, that they feel their society is so stiff-lipped or tightly wound, that Bollywood allows them to express themselves in a way that they feel liberated what is the thing where they've all got the same names in, a, in multiple films? That's just... <laughs> oh, the same character names. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know, that's very strange, because it, it follows um, Amitabh Bachchan and Raj Kapoor, the sort of great stars of their day, played a lot of roles with the same names. Um, I asked Shah Rukh Khan why he played the same... Character with the same name all the time, and he didn't think he did actually. (laughs) So
0: he's played a character called Rahul eight times. Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
1: He's played a couple of Rajas too, and that's what he said to me. That I've also played Rajas, and I thought, okay, well, I had a list. I had a sort of spreadsheet that I, when I watched Shah Rukh Khan films, I counted every film he cried in. it Was like every film, I counted every film he had the same name. You know, every film he dies in. Every film he doesn't get the girl he loves in. it's pretty consistent weirdly
0: what was that interview like you actually you go to meet him in the sort of weird capitalist Disneyland of Dubai
1: oh, yeah Dubai is Dubai is an unusual place because it it encompasses globalization and then it's a caricature of globalization so it is an international hub of sorts of travel of business of commerce but at the same time it only caters to a certain population of the global world let's say. And the rest of that population is quite invisible and lives in subterranean kind of conditions that are quite harsh. And so I met him at the Palazzo Versace, which is not something you would imagine belongs in Dubai. And um, he was there to shoot an Egyptian prank show from um, essentially Saudi-owned television company. And the crew of the shoot were Lebanese, Tunisian, Moroccan, Algerian men. So it really was this hodgepodge of different people all in the same place. And it was bizarre. It was bizarre to see how all these people connected in... They connected to Khan all for different things and different reasons, but all in a slightly hysterical way.
0: You're listening to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Fatima Buto. We're talking about her new work of non-fiction, New Kings of the World, dispatches from Bollywood, DZ and K-pop. And Fatima, let's move on to Turkey then and we'll mm. talk about DZ. We're not allowed to call it soap operas.
1: Yes, that's verboten, as I was told many times.
0: <laughs> um, Turkish DZ, what is it?
1: Well, they're essentially what we would think of as soap operas. Um, except that they are two two hours and 20 minutes long, on average. Um, They come with their original scores, um, with as many as 50 characters in a show. Um, They are set across history, so there are many Ottoman, Sultan epics. And at the same time, there will be epics about women in prison um, today in in Turkey. They cover quite serious issues, such as honour... Um, abuse. Um, One of the most popular Dizi, a show called Fatma Gul, or essentially what is Fatma Gul's fault, was about the gang rape of a young woman, uh, a poor young woman by several rich men. Um, So they're quite hefty in their subject. A lot of them are based on on works of literature, very respected works of literature adapted um, for the screen. And today the Turks are second only to the Americans in terms of worldwide television distribution. That surprised me actually. I, I didn't really know very much about it before writing the book.
0: You only have to go on Netflix to have a look That's and see. Right. I did that last night, and yes. see how much television like, is on there. Yeah.
1: Absolutely, it's growing and growing. Netflix is even producing its own original Dizzy, so they're not just buying the shows, they're making the shows. And they've been going for quite a while. They're not a new project. They've obviously existed in Turkey for a very long time. But they broke out essentially through the Middle East. It happened. Um, well not so long ago in the early 2000s that a few shows caught massive attention across the Middle East and from there they started to spread today they're they're big essentially everywhere except the English speaking world
0: let's just take a step back and I want to talk about the Attempted suppression, but actual flourishing of art under the mm-hmm. dictators in mm-hmm. Pakistan and, mm-hmm. oh, and yes. to the point where the, the Turkish yeah. dizzy started to appear there.
1: Yes, I mean, Pakistan is a very interesting case because Pakistan has a very rich history when it comes to television and theatre. And that period is, its, is at its brightest in the 1970s and 80s when Pakistan was under its darkest era of dictatorship under the CIA-backed General ul Haq who brutalized society through mass censorship, arrests, executions, floggings. And what happened at that time is that incredibly nuanced television serials started to air on state television. They're, they're not never-ending. They're maybe 10 episodes or 20 episodes um, written in very beautiful, poetic Urdu, you know, acted uh, by proper theater professionals. And they tackled the issues of the day. They tackled feudalism. They tackled poverty, injustice. And they did it in such a way that it was almost impossible to catch them and censor them. Of course, they tried. Um, but, they, but they really flourished at that period and even traveled outside of Pakistan. They were very popular in India and have always been popular in India and beyond. And under another dictator, um, some decades later, General Pervez Musharraf, there was an opening up of um, private television channels and and media outlets so television licenses became quite cheap it became easy for businessmen to to buy them and, and people did and you need something to put on TV so the work of serials again kicks off and you have a lot of original programming come back and just as it was picking up steam Pakistan gets hit with Turkish Dizzy. And the reason, part of the reason of Dizzy's success is that if you are, let's say, Lithuania, it's cheaper for your station to buy an existing Turkish show mm-hmm. than to make a Lithuanian drama, you know, buying the rights. Um, so that happens in Pakistan. And again, it catches on like wildfire to the point that television channels are stopping original Urdu programming, throwing it off midair, you know, mid-season, and putting Turkish shows on. To be fair, the Pakistanis fought pretty hard. They fought back and... Um, and they have made some very popular television dramas. And they're on Netflix too, by the way, now. But, but the Turks really came through in a big way. And, and partly they come through for the reason that these are shows, again, centered around the family. They're centered around moral and ethical crises. They are a blend of tradition and modernity in a way that is, I think, done with more believability than Bollywood. Because the modernity is not a mimicry of the West, necessarily, but it's a Turkish version of of that modernity. Um, In Bollywood, you might hear a lot of English. You might hear what we call minglish or hinglish, you know, smattering. You will hear nothing but Turkish in Turkish shows, you know. So they're very proud shows as such.
0: And they don't dance on top of a
1: train. They don't dance on top of trains, unfortunately. But they are they are bound by conservative values <laughs> in the same way that Bollywood might be. So they don't dance on top of trains, but you know, um, there's a show called Forbidden Love. I don't think I'm giving anything away here to say that you, you spend at least five episodes trying to figure out whose love is forbidden because everyone's love looks forbidden. And the couple of the forbidden love won't kiss till episode, I don't know, 30, and every episode is two hours long or so so they are still bound by a set of conservative values and the other thing that's quite interesting to me at least is in a Bollywood film there will always be an Indian flag there will always be patriotic slogans you know a man who walks more into, so now more so now much more so now but always consistently anyone who walks into you know a government office or a school or ends a speech will end with a sort of patriotic kind of ending um, in the Turkish shows no Turkish flags, no snow but they're very nationalistic shows. They're just more nuanced, I think.
0: At the same time that the dictators were charging in Pakistan, just you know, before the Turkish days started coming, yeah. there was also political changes in Turkey which enabled yes. this to happen. What happened there?
1: Well, what's, what connects all three of these spaces, actually, is that they all undergo neoliberal reforms mm-hmm. at the same time. And what those neoliberal reforms do is, in opening up their markets to essentially American business or foreign business, it fractures. It fractures something societally in all these countries. Um, Of course, we know from watching neoliberal reforms put in place that it disenfranchises populations hugely, and again, who it benefits is a small elite. Um, So all these countries go through this approximately at the same time, and it's approximately at that time that these industries ramp up and go into a different gear. Korea might be the more interesting version of that, um, because they really run with it. But the same with with Turkey. Turkey opens up in a certain way. Um, It has now new demands, new demands of the market. It has to produce more, it has to sell more. And it's not enough to just work within your own borders now. You must conquer the world. And I think it drives a lot of what we're seeing today. It drives a lot of what we're seeing today. I said earlier I wouldn't have included India if I was writing the book today. I would have included China instead, because they're going to be the most ferocious. Uh, I think they're going to be the most aggressive when it comes to pushing culture out, and it's only beginning. You mentioned mm-hmm. that
0: Turkish television producers don't look to the outside. But, you know, they don't mm-hmm. go shoot on location in Switzerland or mm-hmm. or Lisbon, and in fact, they don't tend to work in studios unless they have to a lot of it is done in you know in the street and in in real houses and and you actually went and visited the set of 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 one of the shows a sort of remake of the godfather or a version of the godfather yeah what was that like
1: oh well actually if i can recommend a show to little item viewers i would recommend that show it's called shukur which means the pit And it's essentially an adaptation of The Godfather, but set in an Istanbul ghetto. And it's a story of a family. I mean, down to there's a brother like Fredo, you know. There's a father like Don Corleone. There's, of course, the son like Michael doing something Except he's never allowed to hold a gun. Except he's never allowed to hold a gun, exactly. That's one of the rules of Dizzy, that your hero will never fire a gun. He will not be violent. I think that's quite fascinating, actually, especially in the ultra-violent world we live in today. And what they did is they, the, the producers of this show uh, and, it, and they're produced by one of the two biggest, the two huge production houses in Turkey and they're produced by one of them. They took over this neighborhood in Istanbul um, called Balat and they renovated some of the um, interiors. They pay the locals to act as extras and they film on the road. And what was quite interesting is that there's a, there's a sign, there's a sort of graffiti sign that represents these warring factions in this show and when you walk through this neighbourhood, it's it spray-painted all over the place. And I asked one of the art directors, I said, have you done this? And he said, no, people just caught on and they do it themselves now. And the day I was visiting the set, there was a, a Chinese stringer from a news agency reporting. Um, there were tourists with their you know, selfie uh, sticks taking pictures near the actors. And they weren't Turks.
0: Just a little about K-pop before we finished. I mean, more so than both Bollywood cinema and the, the Turkish Dizzy, which obviously have taken forms, artistic forms, from the West and turned them into their own thing. Mm. K-pop is much more a, a an obvious distillation of, of Western pop.
1: Yes, it is. it's is. K-pop is produced in a ruthless manner. It's produced more like a multinational company. You know, like how Pepsi is produced is how K-pop is produced. And what they do is quite ingenious. They call it glocalisation. And what that means is that they will take music you are basically familiar with, Western pop and dance, and they will Koreanize it, they will glocalize it. And they do that, firstly, by by speeding it up, which is what makes it dancey and and happy. And second, Korean, unlike Japanese or Mandarin, let's say, is a syllabic language. That's why it's easy for us to sing along, even though we don't know the words or what they mean. And then the the songwriters uh, of K-pop bands are essentially all... Foreigners. Initially, it was a lot of Swedes. Now it's a lot of Americans who write the music. Um, the choreographers are foreigners again—Americans or, or Europeans. The music video directors will be foreigners, and it works. Actually, it does work. If you look at the the most watched music videos on YouTube, something like six out of ten are K-pop videos. Um, people in Iran are listening to K-pop. I interviewed a girl in Palestine, sitting at home. With bad internet connections, listening to her favorite band.
0: You mentioned that, that it's produced ruthlessly, and yeah. that goes n- nowhere to describing <laughs> what happens yeah. to the to the the stars, the idols, the, you know, yeah. the the practitioners of this. So say, and if we you know we'd have to use a little bit of imagination here. But yeah. Imagine if I signed up to be mm. a, a K-pop artist. What okay. happens?
1: So if you signed up to be a K-pop artist, you would be moved immediately to Seoul. And then you would be put through at least a minimum of five years of training. So you might be the world's greatest singer. No one will hear you for five years. And for five years, you will take singing lessons, dance lessons, elocution lessons. Um, You may be asked to do certain plastic surgery procedures. You won't really have a chance to say no to most of them. Um, You'll be taught Korean. If you don't speak Korean properly, you might even be taught Japanese, let's say, because Korean bands have subunits. So that would be like having the Jackson 5 and then the Jackson 5 Mandarin, which would be a totally new set of people just singing in Mandarin. Once you've gone through your five years of training, you now have to pay back what the studio has invested in you. And that might be anywhere from $300,000 to $500,000. So when you're released as a debut singer, let's assume your K-pop band was called Little Adams, you would then earn back nothing, really, from your album or your endorsements until you've paid back the money. You might earn a percentage, you might earn 20%, but that would be it. And one studio very famously operates by a Bible that they called CT, which stands for Cultural Technology. not allowed outside the offices. No one can see it if they don't work there. And it explains how to launch a band in different territories, down to what eyeshadow they should use down to what hand movements down to what clothes they should wear and it's incredibly regimented there's not a lot of second chances Uh, you fail, you fail, you're out you don't get to come back with another album and hope for a forgiveness tour
0: just to finish us off, and to, to bring us pretty much full circle, you mentioned the, the Turkish dizzy Fatman Man Ghul, yeah. the, the girl who was gang raped. Yeah. Um, one of the producers of that show, the writer of that show, yeah. was approached by a, a right-wing American think tank and offered the job of writing a show that would... Yeah. show American soft power again in a sympathetic light. Yes. How did
1: that go? Well, it was actually someone who hadn't worked on that show, um, but he was a screenwriter and he was approached by an, a right-wing American think tank to do a female-centric dizzy about an American who comes and has great intentions and saves the world. And he wrote it, but nobody would buy it. And that, I heard that repeatedly in Turkey. I would say, you know, are you, are you interested in remaking... And they would look at me blankly and say, why would we remake anything American? They're just making originals and they're very happy with that.
0: So I've been talking to Fatima Bhutto, we've been talking about her book New Kings of the World, Dispatches from Bollywood, Dizzy and K-pop, which is out in the UK from Columbia Global Reports. Fatima, thanks for coming in again.
1: Thank you for having me.